Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we'd love to help you get plugged into the community. And so whether that's small groups or come to Vision Night, we just we want to help you get plugged into the community here and help you find faith in Jesus or grow up in your faith in Him. And so encourage you to get plugged in. Also love to invite you into our fall sermon series. We've been working our way through to, uh, Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica, two letters he wrote. And, but if you've been gone or you just joined us for the first time, it's really important that you understand that, that the recurring theme in both of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, this idea that keeps coming up over and over again in both his letters, is, this, uh, is the day of Jesus' return. And Paul highlights how this day when Christ is going to come and usher in his good kingly rule and reign once and for all is not just a, a reality we can be sure about, but it's something that is meant to transform our lives in really significant ways. And what we've seen throughout our study is, is how at the heart of Paul's writing to the Thessalonians is about how faith in Jesus' return is meant to produce a sanctifying hope in our lives, a, a kind of hope for the future that doesn't just change the way that we die in the end, but a kind of hope for the future that utterly transforms the way that we live now. As we continue our study this week, we're going to see Paul continuing to flesh out the sanctifying effect that hope in Jesus' return is meant to have in our lives. And he's going to shift his attention from where the instructions we saw him giving last week about our relationships and our community as followers of Jesus, as part of God's family together. And we're going to see him giving a series of exhortations about the way they're, and functionally, the way we're, relate, we're supposed to relate to him. And what I want to show you this morning as we take a look at God's word is that, is that God's will, his desire for his people, for all those who belong to Jesus, is that our lives spent waiting for his return, the way that we live as we live in eager anticipation of his return, that they're meant to be continually characterized by a glad and grateful dependence on him. That our lives are meant to be characterized by a glad and grateful dependence on him. Or... In the words of our passage, like uh, Josh and Ali just shared, that we would be rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks always. And on the front of it, our time together, I just wanted to acknowledge that for some of you, that call to rejoice and pray and give thanks, that feels easy right now. But for others of you, that feels really difficult. And the idea of rejoicing and praying and giving thanks right now, let alone all the time, is the last thing that you really want to be doing. That's because you are in, like, you're just in the weeds right now, and there's really difficult, hard things going on in your life. I just want to encourage you that that is the same kind of situation that the Thessalonians found themselves in when Paul wrote this letter to them. Right? They were facing harsh opposition for their faith. They were grieving the loss of friends and family members. They weren't on the mountaintop. They were in the valley. And Paul wasn't trying to just make their life harder. He wasn't trying to just like press on this pain point. He wasn't trying to like tell them to do something he knew was going to be really hard for them. He's trying to show them the path through it. He's trying to help them see the way through the pain, through the heartache. A way not just to survive it, but a way to find life and joy in the midst of it. So my prayer for you this morning has been that now, we might not see these commands as like a duty or an obligation that we have to trudge our way through, but instead we would see them as a deep and life-giving invitation to intimacy with God. 
It's been such an encouraging passage to soak in this week. I can't wait to show it to you. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into God's Word, see if we can't find the sanctifying hope that faith in Jesus is meant to produce in us. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you, and we're thankful for your Word. And uh, just like thankful for the ways that you organize and orchestrate all kinds of things. Um, And we're just thankful to get to come together this morning and to worship you. And so as we come to study your word, God, we just recognizing, uh, we just want to recognize our need for you. God, we can't rejoice and pray and give thanks all the time without you. And so we pray as we study, God, might you fill us with the good news of the gospel. Might you make it fresh and clear in our hearts so that we might have the power and the strength to do it. And so we need you for everything. And we pray that as we study, you might uh, be at work transforming our hearts and enabling us to live for your glory. We pray. Amen. Well, uh, like I mentioned this morning, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, like uh, Josh and Elliot already shared, verses 16 through 18. What amazing timing, right? Reads this way, in case you missed it the first time, right? Verse 16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If there was ever a passage I felt like I could just like read and then close in prayer and just be like, call that good, like this is the one, right? Like it feels pretty clear, pretty straightforward, right? Um, I know I've been going long the past few Sundays, so some of you are like, let's do that, right? Like I got some time back, right? I'm owed something at least here, right? But I figured since we're already all here, there might as well, like there's got to be at least a few things I might have to say uh, that might help us to understand and to live out the commands that we see in these short verses. And as we study this morning, what I want to do is just, we're going to break it down into three sections. I want to show you the what, the why, and the how of these verses. What exactly is Paul calling us to do as Christians? Why are we supposed to be doing them? And how the gospel empowers us to do it. So what, why, and how, right? Begins this way with the what. Paul's instructions here, they might seem pretty clear. They might seem pretty straightforward. But I want to just take a moment to look at each of these commands that he gives and make sure we really understand what he is calling us to because I think there's a lot going on here that's easy to misunderstand with Paul's words here. The first he begins in verse 16. He says that we're to rejoice always. You see, throughout Paul's letters, he repeatedly emphasizes how joy is this defining, like, base-level quality characteristic of a follower of Jesus. And what you see throughout the history of the early church is that in an ancient world that was largely characterized by hopelessness and pessimism, the joy that characterized the early church became one of the most visible and distinguishing qualities about their lives. Remember a few weeks ago I quoted from a, a, a second century letter we have written to a guy named Dagnetus in which the author des- describes what he refers to as, a, as Christians' wonderful and striking method of life. And in addition to highlighting their moral purity and the way that they loved and served people, he was struck by the unshakable joy that they faced all of life with. He notes near the end of one of the sections how even when they were punished, that Christians rejoiced as if quickened into life. And so joy is this this defining root-level quality of a follower of Jesus. But it's really important that you know, that you see here, is that Paul's command here is not to have joy, right? Because what Paul understands is that joy is not actually something you can just conjure up in yourself, 
Right? Anybody could be happy for a while, right? It's easy when things are going well, when your life is good, when career things are happening the right way, when you have enough money, when your kids are healthy, when it's not winter, right? Like it's easy to have joy or it's easy to be happy in those situations. But eventually winter arrives, right? And you have to start shoveling and then all the happiness in the world just immediately plummets out of the universe, right? Maybe that's just me, right? Anyways, uh, uh, or what happens so often is that we just kind of pretend like everything's okay, even if it's not. But what happens is as soon as things stop being okay, or as soon as we kind of like the harsh reality breaks into our kind of like the curtains we tried to throw up on our lives to, to forget about that stuff for a while, we lose that kind of happiness that we have. But joy is different than that. You see, happiness is circumstantial. It's situational. But joy is different. It it can coincide with suffering and problems and difficulties in our lives and in our world and in ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about how he is sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. In 1 Peter 1, Peter commends Christians that were characterized by great rejoicing, even though they were suffering all kinds of grief and trials in the moment. You see, happiness is situational, but real joy is not subject to circumstances. Because joy isn't rooted in circumstances, it's rooted in God himself. See, in Galatians 5, we learn that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, which means that joy is something that God produces in you. It's something he produces in you. We saw that that fact earlier, Paul alluding to that as he highlighted in chapter 1, writing about how the Thessalonians had received the message of the gospel in the midst of suffering, and he said that they had done that with joy that was given to them by the Holy Spirit. And so joy is fundamentally something that God produces in you, not something you produce in yourself. But just because you can't manufacture your own joy doesn't mean that joy is just like this passive thing you just like wait around for God to like zap you with, right? Like when you're not doing well, you really wish that God would just like press the button, right? Like show, you show up to church, you're like, God, like I don't know what's going on, but like can we press the joy button? Like I'm ready, let's do that. Whatever we're going through, I'm not a fan of, like let's do the joy thing, right? But the truth is, is that you and I, we have an active role in pursuing joy. See, our role is to intentionally and continually choose to rejoice. See, rejoicing is the, it's the verb form of the noun joy, and it means to, to celebrate or to delight in something. And so when Paul says that we're to rejoice always, he's not issuing this command to like conjure up some joy in your soul. He's not telling you just be happy all the time. What he's doing is he's extending an invitation, a call to worship. Right? He's calling us to remember and to celebrate and to delight in the truth about who God is and all that he's done. Psalm 103 puts it this way, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my innermost being. Praise his name. Praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all our sins. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit, crowns us with love and compassion. He satisfies our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed. See, Paul's emphasis here is not on the experience of joy. His emphasis on this command is on the active, intentional expression. 
You see, sometimes rejoicing comes natural. Sometimes it just like pours out of you. You see God at work in your life. You see him being, you see him blessing you. You see all kinds of things happening. And it's just like this natural response and you want to praise him and you want to be uh, grateful to him. But oftentimes rejoicing is an intentional choice we have to make. One commentator put it this way. He said, celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our heads. It's the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. For rejoicing is a deliberate and tenacious act of the will. See, rejoicing is about choosing to praise God, choosing to celebrate and remember who he is and all that he has done, not just when it feels like the natural inclination in your heart, but even, and I just say especially, when you don't feel like doing it. See, choosing to rejoice, the reason why that is so central is because it is actually the path to experiencing joy. Psalm 126 puts it this way, the Lord has done great things for us, so we are filled with joy. See, rejoicing is about remembering all that God has done, choosing to set your attention on him in those ways. And just to be clear, Paul's command here, rejoice always, doesn't mean that like you just like always need to have a smile on your face, right? Or that like there's no, there's like you should never grieve, you shouldn't ever have sorrow or lament, right? You can't ever be angry or frustrated with God. Like that's not what he's talking about here. The Bible never encourages us to deny that adversity brings grief and sadness and trials. And yet over and over the New Testament writers emphasize how in the midst of the most difficult situations, God's presence by his spirit in our lives can infuse our hearts with a sense of hope and joy that doesn't just kind of bubble up through it, but that overpowers that kind of grief. So that's why the default setting for a disciple of Jesus is an attitude of rejoicing. See, but it's not just rejoicing Paul calls us to. He goes on in verse 17 and he adds that we're to pray continually. And prayer is this broad category for any and all kind of dialogue with God. It includes things like rejoicing, like we just talked about, but it's, it's also uh, adoration and confession. It's, it's thanksgiving. It's, it's like asking God for things. The fancy theological word for that is supplication, right? Or, or intercession, which is about asking God to help other people for, with things. There's lament. There's asking questions, expressing our doubts, just being quiet and asking God to speak to us. So the question that remains, though, is what does it mean to do all of that kind of dialogue with God continually, or as many translations put it, without ceasing? Now, hopefully it's obvious that Paul is not like literally encouraging you to like quit your job and go like become a monk, right? Get some really great knee pads and spend the rest of your life just like praying a lot, like every single moment, right? Chapter four, we literally saw how he specifically was talking to Thessalonians about working hard and earning their living, right? So, he, so that, it's not like a, it's not this, it's not the literal thing he's talking about. But what, what does it mean? And this is not an exhaustive uh, definition of what it means to, to pray without ceasing, but I think three things I want to point out to you. The first is that it just means to pray a lot, right? It's hyperbolic language, right? Prayer should be something that we do all the time, not just at dinner or at bedtime with our kids. One commentator said it this way, prayer should be more than a slot in our schedule. 
It should be the reflex of our hearts. You see, sometimes people think that, that prayer is like the thing, you're like you talk with God, you pray about big stuff only. Right? Like when you're, like you need a career choice, or you're trying to figure out who you're supposed to marry, right? Or like when you just desperately need your kid to go to bed, right? Like that's the stuff that you pray about, right? And God's too busy for the little stuff, right? He's, he, he, like you don't want to bother him with it. He doesn't have time. Like it's just like, it's just too much, right? Let me just tell you this. As a dad myself, uh, I love when my kids talk to me about whatever is on their minds. I love when they come up and tell me things that are giving them joy. I love when they talk to me about things that they're worried about. When they come and tell me things that make them happy or things that give them fear, I want them to talk to me about everything. And if that's how I feel, then you can be sure that God, who is an exponentially, infinitely better dad than I am, he wants to hear from you about everything. He wants you to feel like you can come to him and talk to him. See, prayer is a result of this relationship that we have with God. But it's also an outworking of our dependence on him and our need for him. And because we are not only in a loving relationship with him as a father, but because we are completely and utterly dependent on him for everything, then prayer should be this natural inclination of our hearts. Something that we do all the time. And yet while on one level Paul's exhortation to pray continually is clearly hyperbolic language, like pray a lot, it also communicates this, <coughs> communicates this, this attitude of dependence on God should permeate, this is the second thing, it should permeate everything we do and everywhere we go. One commentator said it this way, prayer must pervade every part of our lives. We may not pray in every moment, but we do over time bring prayer into all moments. We may not walk with our heads always bowed, but we do always walk in a posture of dependence. See, to pray continually is to be marked by this kind of continual dependence on God that brings our need for him and our recognition of that need into every area and every place in our lives. I don't know about you, but over the years I've learned that the first thing that happens when my alarm clock goes off in the morning, before I open my eyes and figure out what time it is or what's going on or like what mess we have, like our, my kids have already gotten into that we need to start dealing with, the very first thing is I just begin my morning before I even open my eyes and say, God, I need you today. God, I do not have and cannot be what you have called me to do and to be without you. I don't have it in me. And that's not like this attitude of just like defeatism that like, oh, I'm just so weak. I don't have anything going on. Like that's just the truth. Like you and I, we do not have the power to be and to do what God has called us to be and to do without him. None of us do. Nobody has it. And I try to bring that type of dependence into every part of my day into the meetings I walk into, into the work that I need to do, into my interactions with my family and our friends or our small group. God, I need your help. I cannot do this on my own. You see, the good news is that God loves to meet us in our need for him. And it's in fact when we admit our weakness and our need for him that his strength is able to actually shine through and not only bears good fruit that we're really looking for, but that's the thing that actually brings us life and joy, 
right? When you are relying on you, like it's just like the only thing that that breeds is anxiety or pride. But when your dependence is on him, you, it like puts you in this place of safety because he is more than capable and he loves and knows you. And so to pray continually means to pray a lot and to bring an attitude of dependence on God into every part of our lives. But third, it also means that we should not stop praying. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells his disciples a, a parable about a woman who, who just is relentlessly persistent about getting a judge to give her justice. And in verse 1, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. See, what Paul is saying when he says pray continually, right, is that when it feels like your words are bouncing off the ceiling, and when it feels like you don't have a right to come before God, and when it feels like nothing is changing, don't stop. Don't give up. Don't be finished with it. Don't just say, like, there's no reason to go keep going. There's no hope in here. Keep going. Keep expressing your dependence on him. Don't give up. And I don't know about you, but for a lot of people, the idea of that kind of prayer, right, this prayer that it's like a lot of praying, and it brings our dependence into every area of our lives, and, and it enables us to, to not stop, right? That kind of praying, it, like the call to that kind of feels like somebody telling you that you should jog without ceasing. You're like, well, <sighs> right, so I recognize that's probably good for me. Right, like running and you know, like, yeah, that's probably good, but I, I don't know. That sounds like the worst idea I've ever heard, right? You see, we often view prayer as this thing that's good for us. We want to pray more, but we feel like it's more of a burden than the blessing. It's more of a drain than it is a delight. And I hope what you see at the heart of these commands is not like a guilt trip or this like summons to just like drudgery, but it's instead like this invitation to enjoy God and to be with him. One commentator put it this way. I thought this was so helpful. He wrote, if prayer is merely an activity to do, then to pray without ceasing will sound oppressive. But if prayer is instead communion with God, then we will hear the command differently. It will instead sound like this, enjoy God without ceasing. Depend on him without stopping. Gain strength from him in every situation and at all times find that he is ever near and always faithful. And so rejoicing always, praying continually, they're meant to mark our lives. But lastly, finally in verse 18, he instructs Christians to give thanks in all circumstances. Just to be clear, Paul is not saying to give thanks for all circumstances. Right? Like that's just fatalism. That, that's not what he's talking about here. He tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. Right? Because God never commands us to be grateful for the impact of sin and evil in our lives or in the world. Right? You've all met those people that like the first thing they tell you as soon as anything goes bad in your life, oh, it's part of God's plan. That, that's part of God's plan. He's, he's going to do it. That is not faith. Like that's just like the modern version of stoicism, right? Just like that, that's not what that's going on there, right? Sometimes we're just dumb, right? And, the, and we experience the consequences of poor choices. Or sometimes we're just the victims of other people's sin and rebellion. And that, that does not mean that those things are part of God's plan for you. 
Right? See, the Stoics of Paul's day, their response to every situation was that it was just cold, hard fate. Right? Whatever happened was just precisely what was supposed to happen. And yet the Christian's approach is decidedly different. For while we don't believe that every action, everything we experience is God's will and plan for our lives, we do believe that God's sovereignty and power are such that he is able to use our stupidity and even the evil actions and intentions of others for our good. Romans 8.28 says it this way, For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. Just look at the story of Joseph. His brothers literally sold him into slavery. And God uses that evil action not only to bless Joseph in the end, but to save those brothers from starvation. God's sovereignty is such that he, he is able to use even evil for good. And so like it is with, with it is rejoicing, expressing gratitude is not linked with positive circumstances, but with the knowledge that God is good and that he's in control and that you can trust him to be working for your good no matter what is happening. There's an article I read this week, and the woman, uh, she wrote just so beautifully. She said it this way. She said, I have seen God using my pain to draw me closer to him, to comfort others with the comfort I've received, to increase my, the endurance of my faith, and so much more. And so even when I don't understand how God could possibly use a situation for good, I can be confident that he will. He will never allow me to suffer needlessly. And he has precisely measured out my trials so that not a single drop of suffering will be wasted. This reality has led me to an exquisite intimacy with him. Not because my circumstances were good, or even because they were changing for the better, but because God himself was near to me. You see, the call to give thanks in all circumstances is not about the circumstances themselves. It's about the reality of God's good and loving nearness to us in spite of any and all circumstances. So the question that you have to ask, the question that we have to ask at the end of those commands is why? Right? Why are these three things so important in the life of a Christian? Well, Paul tells it to us this way in verse 18. He says, the reason why they're so important is because for this is God's will for you. It's his desire for you. I remember being in college when I finally understood that God's will for my life was not a specific path like this hidden secret thing I needed to somehow figure out how to like find and then follow, right? And it's just like, I just remember how freeing that was. Right? Like it just like freed me from this like, this like crippling kind of anxiety about just like, oh, if, if I don't pick the right major, then I'm gonna mess up God's plan for my life. And if I don't marry the right person, like I'm gonna mess up God's plan. If I, if I don't like pick the right career or move the right place, like I'm just gonna be outside of God's will. Just like spoiler alert, that's not how that works. God's will for you is not a specific path for your life. It is a pattern of living. Like we saw in chapter 4, Paul said God's will for you is that you might be sanctified, that you might be set apart by him, for him, 
that your life might look increasingly like that of Jesus. And we see that these are the kinds of things that characterize Jesus' life. And when they characterize ours, what happens is that we start to live in this way that's set apart from the world around us. Right? To be characterized by rejoicing instead of cynicism and hopelessness, that stands out in our world. Right? To, be, to live with an attitude of prayerful dependence instead of just like radical independence and self-sufficiency, that stands out. To replace narcissism and a sense of entitlement that's so pervasive and to replace those things with humble gratitude, those things were and are wildly countercultural. There are ways that we stand out in this world as those who have been set apart by God for him. But the reason why these attitudes and actions are so central to God's will for Christians isn't just so that we would stand out in the world as his people set apart for him, but is in fact because these habits, these behaviors are actually the thing that empower our ongoing sanctification. There's the thing that empower the transforming work that God wants to do in us. You see, the way people change is not when they know the right information. All of you know all kinds of right information that you are not currently following. Right? Information is not enough to change anybody. See, the way you change is not just when you know the right information, but it's when you believe it on a heart level. Right? It's not just when you know what's true. It's when you believe and when you love the truth. That's what changes you. And so rejoicing and praying and expressing our gratitude, what they are is fundamentally the means by which we keep setting our eyes on what is true. It's the means by which we take our, our eyes off of ourselves and off of our situations and put our attention back on God and the eternal hope that we have in him. In other words, their habits that continually reorient our perspective and refocus our attention on God. <coughs> Dallas Willard writes, the first and most basic thing that we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This indeed is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. In time, a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones that used to take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. For if God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. You see, rejoicing always, praying continually, expressing gratitude, they're not just behaviors that just like put positivity into the world. That's not the point. The point is that they redirect and refocus our attention back on God. And the reason why we have to do it continually is because we have the memory of a goldfish and we are constantly forgetting who God is, all he has done, and our reasons to rejoice and give thanks and pray. And so we have to keep entering back in. See, the only way we're going to change is when we keep setting our eyes on Jesus. Here's the good news, though. When you keep setting your eyes on him, 
you will invariably change. Colossians chapter 3 says it this way, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and when he who is your life appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. See, that brings us to the last thing I need to show you this morning. It's the how. How do you choose to rejoice even when life is hard and when you're in the thick of difficulty and sorrow? How do you choose to keep praying when it feels like all your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and nothing is changing? How do you choose to give thanks when circumstances in life would lead you to believe that you don't have anything to give thanks for? Well, it's all in the last part of verse 18. Paul says it this way, that this is not just God's will for you, it's God's will for you in Christ. In Christ. You see, our union with Jesus is the key to the how. That's the thing that enables and empowers us to do what these verses command us to do. You see, the good news of the gospel is not just that God calls his people to be joyful and prayerful and thankful, but that he makes it possible for those things to be true in you. See, if you are in Christ, then you belong to God's family by faith in Jesus, and you have reasons for joy that circumstances cannot alter. Paul just reminded us in verse 10, just a few weeks ago we saw that it's our faith in Jesus' death and his resurrection that give us this confident hope that God didn't appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. You see, knowing that your eternal destiny is salvation and not judgment, that frees you, gives you this kind of hope and joy that situations don't take. No matter what happens, you are safe with him. You have something that is more real and more sure and more like just unchangeable than your current situations are. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, he put it this way, if you understand the promise of the gospel, it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. He's saying that if you get that no matter what happens in this life, that by faith in Jesus you belong to God, that your name is written in his book of life, and that no one and nothing can take you out of his hand, then in the midst of the worst situations, you can have an overpowering joy. And in the midst of the best situations, you can be sure that you have a joy that cannot be ripped from your hands in a moment. And because you belong to Jesus, you don't just have reasons to rejoice, but you have a confidence that empowers your prayer. As Hebrews 4, 16 puts it, that we might approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, Jesus's, your relationship with Jesus, your union with him, is what grants you access to the Father. More than that, more than just having unhindered access, you can be sure that Jesus at this moment is right now at the right hand of the Father, serving as your advocate before him. And so even if you, for whatever reason, feel like your prayers aren't being heard, you can be absolutely sure that the Father is listening to Jesus' advocacy for you.
and his love for you and his longing for your good is this promise that you, it's like this reminder, it's like you can be sure God's not going to withhold something good from you. You are his beloved child. You are not an employee. And so you can be sure he wants to hear from you and that he wants to respond to you. And when you keep coming back to the gospel as the ultimate proof that God's not just able to work all things together for your good, but that it is indeed the pattern and the proof that whatever situation you are facing is not the end of the story. But instead, as 1 Peter 1 says, that he's given us an inheritance that can't perish or spoil or fade. An inheritance, Peter says, that is kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's very own power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. When that is the thing that shapes your relationship with God, then what's going to happen is you will have the ability to give thanks in every circumstance. Not because your situations are great, but because the God who loves you is greater than all your situations. And he wants to meet you in the midst of it with life and hope and goodness. See, and all of that is possible because we are, we belong to him in Christ. And it's Jesus' life and death, his transforming work for us, on the cross that we remember and celebrate every week when we take communion. And so communion doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't save you, and it doesn't change your status or your standing with God, but it's a chance for us to remember and to celebrate his body and blood that were broken and shed so that you, might, you and I might be able to rejoice always and pray continually and give thanks in every circumstance. And so if you put your trust in Jesus or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you, during our time of worship, go back and dip the bread in the juice. There's tables on the left and on the right. Do it as a reminder of all that you've trusted Jesus to be and to do for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him and what allegiance to him really involves, I want to encourage you, you are welcome here, but hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that trusts in him completely. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And so come to him. Ask him to be the one that empowers you to have joy and to have gratitude and to be full of confident prayer. Wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you, as we take communion, as we sing, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Where is God putting on your heart the reality of your need to keep growing? See, some of you are here, and the default mode of your heart is not rejoicing. The default mode of your heart is grumbling and complaining. And whether it's about the restaurant that you ate at last night or the people that you work with or the schools that your kids attend or your small group people or whatever's going on with the government, the first and most pervasive words out of your mouth are always critical and cynical and pessimistic. And there is just like this general angstiness that kind of characterizes the way that you walk through the world. And I just need you to hear this this morning. That is not what you have been called to. 
You have been called by Jesus himself to be characterized by rejoicing. And if you're going to be marked by rejoicing, it's going to need to begin with repentance and admitting that just like cynicism and just being critical about everything, that is not your personality type. Right? Like that's just not who you are. That is a way of living that stands at odds with God's will for your life. And so ask him to help you identify those attitudes in your heart and to enable you not just to turn from them, but to replace them with rejoicing. Others of you are here, and maybe you're like me, and this, the command to pray continually is really sticking out in your heart and mind. And it's not that you don't ever pray, but it's that continually is probably not the word you'd use to describe the way that you go about prayer. Right? Maybe like me, you, you tend to have this reactive posture of prayer where you respond to people in situations. And that's not wrong, but that's also not enough. You see, the posture of prayer that God desires us to have is not just reactive, it is proactive. It's one of intentional and continual dependence on him. John Piper puts it this way, if we hope to pray without ceasing, to enjoy a continual coming to and depending on God, we will need to develop disciplined times of prayer. We'll need to follow, he says, the pattern of the psalmists and apostles and of our Lord Jesus himself, who diligently devoted portions of their day to getting alone with God. For nobody, nobody maintains pure spontaneity in this fallen world. See, if we're going to be a people who are praying continually, it's going to have to be something that starts to get intentionally put into our lives. Lastly, others of you who are here, and the area that you really need to go, grow in is gratitude. Because the truth is, is that like the world around us, you tend to live with the sense of entitlement that is bleeding over into your relationship with God. And you wouldn't say this out loud, and it feels really gross even saying this, right? but the functionally, the way that you relate to God is like he owes you something. God, I've been doing a really good job with obedience. You should be answering my prayers. God, I've been really being generous with you. Why aren't you being generous with me? It's always like a if this than that. God, if I do this, then you'll do that. It's this tit-for-tat kind of business relationship with God. Spoiler alert, God owes you nothing. Jack squat, nothing at all. He doesn't owe you anything. And yet, in spite of the fact that we are owed nothing by him, our lives are relentlessly full of his generosity towards us. Our lives are full of good things, zero of which we are due or owed. And so the only fitting response to life in God's world is one that is full of gratitude. But whether it's rejoicing or praying or giving thanks that you need to grow in, we just close by saying this. There's two things that we all need to do. If we want to grow in these areas, there's two things that we all need to be doing. One is that we're going to have to embrace discipline, right? You're going to need to probably start setting some reminders on your phone, start putting some things in your calendar, right? You're probably going to need to start making some lists. 
I hate lists, right? Lists is like, that's way too much organization for my life, right? Like, I just like, that, that hinders me. Like, I like to go with the flow, right? But those things are actually things that are going to help you in those moments where you don't feel like rejoicing and you don't feel like giving thanks and you don't feel like praying to remember all of the reasons why you have to do all of those things and to intentionally make space to carve out situations that you can do those things in. I'm not opposed to like spontaneous prayers, right? You read Paul's letter, he just breaks out into prayer in the middle of sentences. Like that happens, right? But we're not going to be characterized by continually praying unless we are characterized by discipline. We're not going to be characterized by continuous rejoicing, continually giving thanks, unless that is a, something we put into the structure of our days and lives. But lastly, you're going to need to embrace community. See, the truth is that you cannot do these things on your own. Not only were the previous verses immediately prior to this all about community, all three of these commands in the original language are written in the plural, which means they're not things you do by yourself. They're things you do in community. You see, when you do not feel like praying or giving thanks or rejoicing, the only way you're going to be able to keep doing that is if you have surrounded yourself by a community that will help you do it. And when you can't pray, pull yourself into people who will pray for you. And when you don't feel like you can rejoice or give thanks, surround yourself with people who will do it for you. See, you need community Not only do we need one another to be characterized by these things, we are called to be a community of rejoicing and prayer, a community of people that demonstrate the life-altering relationship with Jesus, how it changes us. And so my prayer has been this week that as we live out these commands, that our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, that they might start to see the life-giving, sanctifying hope of Jesus in us. And that it might be good news, not just that changes us, but that changes our world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for you. And we are so grateful that these commands are not just a call to drudgery and to duty and obligation, but they're a call to intimacy with you. To continually reorient our perspective and refocus our attention on you. And so might we see them that way. Might you graciously call us into these things continual joy and rejoicing, ongoing prayer, gratitude no matter what. Help us to be characterized by those things. Empower us by your spirit to pursue them for our good and for your great glory, we pray. Amen.